there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also here to tell you about the most incredible heist you've probably never heard of. Let me play you the sound of that heist succeeding at this announcement event in 2010. And this is the public notary of the city of Zurich. He gives me the envelope. That is the voice of Sepp Blatter. Sepp was the president of soccer governing body FIFA, and he's speaking at a FIFA news conference slash ABC's The Bachelor style reveal. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope that the name of the winner is on both sides because I don't know. So the 2018 FIFA World Cup, 2018 FIFA World Cup, ladies and gentlemen, will be organized in Russia. Okay, what was that noise? That was like a scream and a boo and also a trumpet section somehow. If they if they gave Bachelor Roses to that, I would watch that show. Like that's that's how you let the ladies know, you know what I mean? Or men, the bachelorette, they do a lot. Either way, that was not the only announcement that day. They announced two World Cup host countries. Here's Sep with the 2022 build-up. Shall I recall the candidates? Australia, Japan, Korea, Qatar, United States of America. And after he got done reading every country on Earth's name, Sepp ripped off the band-aid. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. <laughs> More screaming and booing and tooting. That's what I look for. Also, I hope everybody looks at an event like that closely. It touched off investigations, scandals, allegations of bribery, and all kinds of other corruption you probably haven't even heard of because the World Cup is happening this week, if you're listening to when this drops. And that is not just a sporting event. It's like a plotline from The Godfather, and most people don't even know it. Our topic this week is the World Cup's dark side, and whether or not you like soccer, this episode is for everybody. It's particularly for you if you live in the US, Canada, or Mexico, because in a couple of days they're going to announce whether or not your country is hosting the 2026 World Cup, so you should know what your tax dollars are going toward. But either way, soccer, in this case, is much bigger than sports, it is politics, it is how money moves around, and it is how one guy rented out most of Trump Tower for his cats. I know that sounds made up, we'll get into it. Because we're getting into a lot. We're going from soccer all the way to how sports can be used to prop up dictatorships, and my key guest for that is Dr. Natalie Cook. She is an associate professor and O'Hanley faculty scholar in the Department of Geography at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. Go Orange! And she is a scholar who is diving deep into how sports and politics and Central Asia all collide in really strange ways, and some of those ways in history and today 
prop up dictatorships. My other guest today is Demorge Brown. He joins me in LA, and you know him if you follow comedy and or podcasting. We are really lucky to have him from Harmontown, from Channel 101, from so many other things that lead to all of the entertainment you like. So what a pair of guests. I can't wait for you to hear them and hear us get into it. Let's do that now. Please sit back or lean forward and make some World Cup picks. There's a lot of, there's actually a lot of exciting soccer going on, even with the U.S. out of it, like Iceland's in for the first time, Panama's in for the first time, Belgium might just, like, win it. Can you believe that? Little little Belgium. How about them? Isn't that neat? Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracks Podcast with Dr. Natalie Cook and Demorge Brown. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I don't know exactly where either of you are from originally, but like what led you to soccer? Because I feel like in America, it's sort of a subculture, if anything. I'll be honest with you. I've never in my lifetime known a place where soccer wasn't at least on par with football and baseball, if not larger than football and baseball. That's from being younger um, all the way up. And oh. and I find that that's weird now. Like now I look at it and I think, geez, man, because uh, we moved around a lot, but it just sort of happened every place that we went, soccer was a big, 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 big deal. So I started playing when I was six just because I got to a school where on the first day at recess, that's what they played. And huh. I didn't realize you're supposed to shoot and score. I just took the ball and could, nobody could get away from me. And, uh, and then it just went from there. Oh, right on. Yeah. So you, you were just like steeped in it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. I mean, in New York, there were 900 channels even before you got cable. And each one of them, there were a lot of, like the Italian channel, which shows soccer all weekend long. Natalie, how, how about you? Like, I know you're not just uh, studying soccer or something, but what, what, uh, when did the sport first uh, come into your life in general? I largely have started studying sport because I was doing my dissertation research on Kazakhstan, and Kazakhstan has this bike team that's named for the capital of, of the country, which was the topic of my dissertation research. So I kind of fell oh, into wow. it doing some research on that eventually because I, you know, as a cyclist was just curious about what was going on. And then because I study uh, all the countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, uh, the the World Cup going to going to Russia was was pretty significant. But I've also been working in the Gulf countries in uh, in Doha for the last five, no, six years about. So I've been watching Doha transform itself uh, oh. since it was announced that they got the rights to host. So it, it's, it's something that I've just kind of been slowly following. I wish I knew more about Kazakhstan in general. I feel, I feel like the yeah. movie Borat <laughs> is the primary touchstone of pop culture. I don't know what the name of the team was. Let's yeah. see if I recognize it team name team astana that's that's a kazakhstan team yeah so it was initially funded by uh the sovereign wealth fund of kazakhstan uh samrat kazana is the name of it and now it's it's funded by a a range of different uh entities within within kazakhstan but yeah lance armstrong rode for them for one year alberto contador rode for them uh several years so it happened that uh alberto contador won the Tour de France the year that I was there doing dissertation research. And so I started to hear a lot of people talking about how we, as in Kazakhstan, won the Tour de France, which, you know, the tour doesn't work that way. Right, right. <laughs> it's not organized. It's yeah. not organized around national teams. But that sort of disjuncture between 
how these ordinary people were talking about it as if they had won and as if their national team had won when it's actually not. It's a corporate sponsored, but, you know, sponsored by their oil money um, that the government has decided to to jump into that team. I wish that yeah, history yeah. was communicated in the broadcast for the, the race. They kind of just throw mm-hmm. these names out and don't yeah. let you know that there's disparate origins for all these sort of team names. Yeah, I mean, right. and the Gulf the Gulf countries have been getting in on uh, these bike teams as well. So Bahrain uh, and the UAE now also have bike teams that are named for themselves. And and in most of these cases, they're coming from the the sovereign wealth funds. So where all the oil and gas money gets pooled into these big funds, and why they choose bike racing. Um, I don't know. There's, is, there's some for the, for <laughs> dubious motives. For the U.S., is, is U.S. Postal the closest we ever came to, to that sort right. of thing? <laughs> probably. Yeah, probably. We know how well that ended. It, well, yeah. We know why it started, too. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's one of the things that's remarkable about that Lance Armstrong, uh, his downfall was the, the U.S. investigators really were only looking into this because it was it was when he was riding for U.S. Postal that, that a lot of this corruption was happening. Uh, so, you know, if it, if it was just any other corporate team, maybe there would not have been such a such an interest on behalf of the U.S. government to take action. It sort of relates to because we're talking about the World Cup, but also a lot of world sports in general, especially mm. this kind of thing with cycling mm. and the Olympics. And it seems like corruption kind of follows it wherever it goes. And I feel like most, especially Americans, don't know that FIFA, the governing body organizing all these World Cups, it's been around since 1904. It took a turn starting in the 70s or so, and it's become this like crazy, it's like a white-collar criminal organization almost. It's really, really strange. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a beast now from what I can understand. Yeah, they, and yeah. I was reading about it. Apparently in 1974, FIFA headquarters in Zurich, Switzerland had 12 employees total. That was the entire mm. group. And today it's um, revenue in a four-year cycle is $5.7 billion of yeah. TV money and sponsorship money and everything else. So 1974, that was that, that was the big transition when you had Stanley Rouse, who was the FIFA president. He stepped down or, well, was was not reelected as the FIFA president. And you had Zhao Havelange take over. And he was the one that really pushed getting getting uh, the games and the World Cup on TV. So that was the big transition moment. In fact, I think what you were talking about, how like it, it's become something of a white-collar criminal situation, it's, I think it, at its origins, it was always kind of an old boys club and, and really sketchy networks. Uh, but what happened then in 74 was that the money and the, the resources that they were working with just blew up. And yeah. so, you know, then, then that just sort of exaggerates what perhaps were already certain patterns. And this was yeah. the first World Cup that sort of ABC yeah. got into. ABC was like, okay, now we, we have something we can show America on wide world cool. sports. And because yeah. there was not this expectation for live broadcast, uh, mm-hmm. they would grab it, serialize it, and then every Saturday keep you updated and do, through the news sort of update you. And that's when that pattern started and they were drawing advertising and they would make these narratives out of things. But the big narrative Mm -hmm. out of that particular World Cup is that this clockwork orange team with Cryoff and and Naskins and all these guys Mm -hmm. looked unbelievable, unstoppable. And they wore these electric orange jerseys. And still do. Um, But I think Germany 74, suddenly Adidas goes crazy 
after that because they have mm. – there was all this sort of merchandising that was just yeah. their jersey. The ball was 74 and the Adidas logo on it. Adidas attached right. themselves to the German national team even though they were making the ball for the whole World Cup in all countries. And it just sort of starts spinning out there. Adidas cleats become a, um, a big one. Beckenbauer's cleat was Franz Beckenbauer. Yeah. Um, who was sort of the field marshal for that team, who then left and went to the Cosmos and went on to – see, this is the thing that's crazy. So that's, 70, <laughs> so that's 74, right? Yeah. But the Cosmos come in and they, in, they're in New York. They're playing in the United States, which like you said at that time, largely a lot of people weren't really focused on, on soccer, especially as a broadcast event. But somehow they were, they were filling up stadiums. They were drawing 70,000 and among those – Celebrities like Studio uh, Studio Fifty Four celebrities like Grace Jones and Mick Jagger were coming to watch soccer, right? And it just became this weird cross pollinization that exploded. It, it, suddenly, they realized, oh, if we go to the U.S., even though our career would be done, we have three, four more years, and we're getting world fame, and we're putting our name on training camps, more products, goalkeeping gloves. That kind of thing. Not everybody who listens to the show is a sports fan, uh, so they may not follow all the exact particulars of all that. But it, it, I think it speaks to, like, if you're into soccer, there can be these rivalries and lineages and things that go back so many decades. And, like, like there are people yeah. in Brazil who are still heartbroken over games from the 1950s that they lost. <laughs> like, it's still I, I a thing. all of it and really yeah. all of the whole history of the sport especially now that it's being serialized and, and people as a general whole are more receptive to it. I mean, yeah. now suddenly the number of ads with soccer moms in them or and – and I don't even – this is the next level of it. The number of ads with soccer teams, soccer players in them that are just general sunny delight ads or something. But it's clear that they've hired an expert to be on set to say that shot wouldn't go like that. You would never take that shot or no bicycle kick in the shot because every commercial has a bicycle kick in it. It's better to kick. do yeah. a roundhouse, do a different type of kick, that kind of thing. It's like a backflip if people don't know. One of my, one oh, of my yeah. favorites because I fly Cutter Airways a fair bit uh, is that they've got the you know the, the teams doing the, uh, the air safety announcement uh, <laughs> like in the video oh, you have to watch the whole the whole football team doing it <laughs> you know they're trying yeah. to get your attention <laughs> they're probably experts in aeronautics they probably know a lot of at least the kids will pay attention and that's such a thing because as as you both describe like sponsorship is so much of a part of it and also there's so much passion like it creates a mm. lot of energy and a lot of attention that builds this like pot of money and then and Natalie as you were saying like it has always been an old boys club it sounds like but that election yeah. that moved it to Havalange that when you say election that's not like a democratic election right like that's well, a corporate board kind it's, of it's, election it, it, it's kind of yeah board. so it's, the, it's yeah. the representatives from the from the various groups uh, yeah. around the world so yeah I mean I think that election is interesting as well because Adidas had a really close like the, the Adidas rep I can't remember his name right now he <laughs> had a really close relationship with Stanley Rouse and so he sort of was was giving Stanley Rouse confidence that he was going to win that that vote Vote. But then right. when Zhao Havalanche took over, like that, that, that rep decided, you know, okay, <laughs> we have a new president. Uh, Adidas is all on board with partnering with him. Uh, so that, that didn't sort of jeopardize their, their role as the, key, as the key sponsor at that point in time as well. He like 
has been sort of an August figure in FIFA for all of these years. Like he, in 2013, he had to step down from an honorary post he was holding at the age of 97 because it came out <laughs> that he had taken bribes for TV right stuff uh, in the 90s. And so at 97, they they got him, you know? The current right. face of uh, corruption in, in FIFA. Yeah, it's an organization that it's bas- it seems like it's basically been run by a couple people. Like we have Stanley Rouse and a few people before mm-hmm. him where it's an old boys club that's also not handling that much money yet. And then we have in the 70s, there start to be TV rights for it. And then people are able to just take money under the table to sell the TV rights out. And mm-hmm. only a couple of people have run it. Havelange and then, as you just mentioned, Sepp Blatter is like the next yeah. guy. He somehow kept and, getting elected. And <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he, he also, so Sepp Blatter was was Havelange's right-hand man for, for many, many years. So it was pretty, like, even, you know, though he had a long tenure, he was in long before that. And uh, and so the this very, very small group of people uh, in 2010, they decided that these next two World Cups, uh, the one this year in 2018 would be in Russia, in 2022 it would be in Qatar, and then after that there was a raid in 2015, and then this whole investigation happening that we should get into, because like there was like a sting at a Swiss hotel, and they led seven people out of it, and the hotel staff were like holding up bedsheets to kind of protect the privacy of the people caught from the reporters. There was a rep from Trinidad and he sent his assistant who was new or something to this meeting oh. in the hotel. And the guy gets there and it's just a bunch of people on the stairs. Uh, <laughs> and they're t- they keep telling this guy, he keeps asking, they're like, shut up, just shut up, wait for your turn. And right. he gets, and suppose he gets in the room. And there's just an envelope on the bed and nobody will talk to him and he doesn't know what's going on. (laughs) And he opens it up and there's money. And then he calls in. He goes over his his boss's head and calls in. And this is where it all sort of like starts to unravel because that guy's like, dude, shut up. And then somehow it all – somehow that information gets out. I don't know that that's true or legend. And there's trouble around the cutter bid too. 100%. Because the first questions were asked were, A, how did you pass over these other amazing presentations? And then secondly, Mm. how are you going to have that World Cup in the summer? And then their response was, we've got a plan. We'll show it to you later. So they were given a moment of time to show it. One of their things was they had a Dutch company come up with a series of large rugs that would would be stadium-sized. There were yeah. animations that put up that ran through this, and they presented this to people. People, yeah, that's that's what we were that's what we were talking about with yeah. the cutter bid. People were worried about the climate. It's just too hot in that country in the summer to like maybe play soccer intensely safely outdoors. They and, were like, and, what and do we do? And for fans to sit there and watch it and go up and down emotionally and drink, right? And all, you know, all that kind so of. So they wanted stuff. to put rugs over the stadium, like in each section, <laughs> have them. Well, they said in the homes, a lot of the, a lot of. The cooling system is done by these rugs that, in certain terms of the, certain parts of the day, you can pull down on them, and they, and it's effective and it works. So they yeah. sort of blew that up, extrapolated for the size of a stadium, and and had this Dutch firm come up with this thing. People who were sort of removed from that whole thing, who weren't just signing off on it, came back and said, "What are you talking about? Let's ask the Dutch guys." And they asked the architect, the architecture firm, and they were like, "Well." What we gave them was a sort of uh, – it was an idea. It was a proposal <laughs> for an idea. It's not actually based in literal fact that can be pulled off. Right. It's rug theory. You know, yeah. it's not – yeah. But while all this is going on, I think the FIFA investigations are progressing and getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And then yeah. that's when they started proposing that they move the World Cup to the winter and that all national teams that were had schedule, pro schedules would 
take a break in the middle of the year for, or at the end of yeah. the year for some reason so that the Qatar World Cup could be played in a, a I, cooler climate. And I think that's how they're executing it. They're going to play the World Cups always in the summer, but in 2022, it's going to be a wintertime cup because that's the weather insane. will be more reasonable. It's scheduled right now to start November 21st, 2022 and run through December 18th, yeah. <laughs> which is also Qatar's uh, national national day. Like it's like their Independence Day. <laughs> Is that why in the, in the like the first leak out of the? There's always a FIFA meeting before the like, World Cup, yeah. Where, yeah. They, yeah, where they award new things and and that kind of stuff and celebrate the fact that they've made a, a gazillion dollars that year. And right. it feels like the first announcement that came out of it was that the the English league leaked out that they were going to start taking a winter break. Which is an idea that had no footage for so long, and then suddenly today, we are prepared to start taking a winter break, either next year or the year after or something. If you're an American and listening at home and not a soccer fan, this is like if somebody said to you, hey, the Super Bowl in a few years is going to be on the 4th of July uh, just because, yeah. like, just because the man. world decided it needs to be. Also, there's probably some bribery behind the scenes that made it happen. Uh, just roll with that. And the bid, the bid, they originally did propose keeping it in July, which is when it typically is. Qatar did this. Also, they hosted the uh, World Road Cycling Championships in 2016, which I went and sort of did a did a project on. And they did the same thing. They they moved it much later in the year than they than they normally would. Um, it was still ungodly hot in <laughs> October yeah. when they had it, uh, and the cyclists did t- terribly with the heat. Uh, but but nonetheless, it, it's something that they've that they've pulled off before. Natalie, you say you've spent a lot of time in Doha and Qatar late. Like, how bad yeah. is that summer? I, I've read, I think it's in the triple digits and then some, but I don't really know. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awful. So, and I say that <laughs> from, from Arizona, right? Oh, I'm boy. from Tucson, uh, where I'm accustomed to walking around in 110, 115, whatever it is. Uh, so yeah, it is, it, it is also worse because it's extremely humid. Uh, so there's, oh, you know, that, that's that's another big, big issue uh, where it's it's just hard to cope with being out in the sun and the humidity and the um, some of the, the stadiums that they're planning to build are allegedly going to be having air conditioning. So oh. that's one of the ways that they're trying to push back against this. But then, of course, I mean, some of my other research is about how they're how they're trying to make these games look green and sustainable when <laughs> like talking about one of right. the the uh, leading countries in terms of its water use and energy use per capita. It's just extraordinary. Uh, So one of the critiques that they've been subject to is saying basically like this is just a huge environmental wastage to to do this. Uh, So they're trying to come up with all sorts of ways to say, oh, look, but we're going to power these air-conditioned stadiums with uh, sustainable energy. (laughs) (laughs) However you can imagine that looking. (laughs) It's totally absurd to have this in the first place but at least we can make it green all that's astounding and then fifa awards these two bids at once in 2010 uh uh, they're like russia then cutter after that and fifa want us all to believe like we want to put these cups in russia and then just we're going to fully air condition cutter because that's a good idea that's a we just think it's a good idea and then it came out after that that how FIFA works is there is a vote among members uh, to decide things like this. Before the vote, two members were kicked out of it because they were like, ah, these members might you know, be near money. And then it turned out 
basically every other member was near money. Uh, there was a lot of <laughs> cash flying around, and there was one payment of $10 million to um, Jack Warner, who I think is maybe mm. the Trinidad uh, uh, yeah, official yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and then also a guy named Chuck Blazer, who's a phenomenal character. We'll get into that. <laughs> uh, but $10 million went to them. Also, a lot of the payments involved U.S. banks, and so this became like a U.S. federal criminal case uh, that was mm-hmm. tried in New York City court because it there, there's a lot of reporting and a lot of bribery basically indicating that it's not exactly clear how Russia got a cup, but Qatar almost definitely paid some money to get a cup, even though it is like physically, ecologically, geographically not a thing that makes sense. Doesn't work. <laughs> a lot of the the information that apparently the U.S. Uh, prosecutors got comes from Chuck Blazer being an informant for the FBI. Uh, so, you know, th- this happened for, for an extended period of time. He was collecting evidence for them, <laughs> you know, the former CONCACAF. It sounds like you're talking about Whitey Bulger. And it's like, but this yeah. is yeah. soccer. This is like, this is how crazy, <laughs> incredible this this whole concept of a game. Yeah, and yeah. And the size of its impact or footprint is. Because it's astounding. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a thing. Is this the same investigation then where they sort of started looking into the finances of Sepp Blatter and found that he had a penthouse apartment in one of Trump's buildings where he never went but, oh, had, a, but had a staff on 24 hours and there was a cat that lived there and that was it's it? Blazer. No, that was that Blazer. Was that Blazer? <laughs> yeah. Good God. So it really is like, like soccer. I feel like if Americans have any general perception of it, if they're not fans, they're like, Oh, it's a relatively gentle sport that the Europeans enjoy, you know? Uh, but it's actually, like, that is somewhat true, but then the organization around it is, like, cartoonishly corrupt. And this guy, Chuck Blazer, was an American executive involved in FIFA, and he was paying himself $9.6 million over five years on top of his salary. He also set up a thing where... Any deal that CONCACAF makes, and CONCACAF is the overall federation for all of North American soccer, the entire continent, any deal they make, he got 10%, just straight up. And then he was renting an entire floor of Trump Tower, including one apartment that he just used for his cats. They just lived there. (laughs) And he was never there. And he was never there. It sounds like I'm making all of that up, but it's a thing that world soccer was paying for. This is this is the thing that kind of gets me raising my eyebrows about all of the chastising of Qatar or of Russia or any of these places is that it somehow just descends into this critique of of those countries and somehow oh, yeah. shifts the attention away from the very fact that like this is happening right here in the United States. <laughs> this is this is pretty typical, right? Felt, like they're different issues, but I felt also the same way with respect to uh, with Brazil when they were going through their build-up stage for the World Cup because there mm. were all these impact problems. Stadiums were running into construction issues. Then there were workers who were being underpaid who then were going on strike to leverage better wages so that they could continue saying, look, you know, we know you have a deadline. We're just not going to work until you guys realize it and then start paying us what we need, protecting us. Then transportation got involved. Then the people generally got involved around these saying, what are we going to do with these things when they're done? And where's all this money coming from? And yeah. the government themselves saying, look, we're doing this. We're allocating this as we have funds. We're doing the best we can do to distribute it. Meanwhile, FIFA's got these people running around wasting money on <laughs> cat apartments. Penthouses, yeah, yeah. <laughs> penthouses for cats and that they're not using. 
<laughs> and salaries <laughs> on top of salaries, also turning their nose up saying, well, Brazil, uh, you know, get your act together. They always do this. If there's criticism of, yeah. they dangle out the alternative places and the U.S. is always in there. U.S. and Sweden are always in there. Those guys are ready to go in case of an emergency. When a country hosts the World Cup, their team automatically gets to be in it. There are a lot of reasons we'll get into why countries want to do these, especially with things Natalie has been researching. Uh, but also, mm-hmm. there is some national pride element, and it seems like maybe that plays into... We, we're Like you said, we're, we've been uh, picking on Russia and Qatar maybe a little bit. Uh, but it, if you go back through some of these other cups, like 2014 in Brazil, Demorge, you were talking about these stadiums that they were just struggling to build. And as of 2017, six out of the 12 they built are under bribery and corruption investigations for like various mm. specific local building issues. With the 2010 Cup in South Africa, if people remember the Vuvuzela horns and stuff. Right. Oh, very fun. At the same time, the BBC reports that there was a $10 million bribe worked out probably to get the cup put there between South Africa's president and Sepp Blatter. 2006 in Germany, the CEO of Adidas had a slush fund to try to get uh, use over $6 million worth of money to push the cup toward being in Germany. Um, mm-hmm. And in the 1998 France World Cup, uh, our friend Chuck Blazer says that he knew guys <laughs> who were taking bribes from Morocco to try to put the cup there. There's like yeah. there's all this anything, pushing though. to get the cup. Like, is it just national pride? Is it just like, we'll have an angle on this thing and we'll get to feel like we're part of it? Yeah, I think that's a large part of it. But I think also there is there is that too. It's, yeah, there's if it's in your backyard, everybody's watching you. I would definitely say that that's at least how they sell it to the people. Right. Um, so one of the one of the things that I really focus on in my research on these these particular events and, and you know, there's there's tons of research about mega events all over the world. I study authoritarianism like that's kind of my, my general topic. Uh, so what I'm interested in then is how and why are we starting to see the rise of these sorts of events in authoritarian states? And so the, those authoritarian states, you know, a lot of them, they want to try and promote a positive image of the government to the people. Uh, and in yeah. some cases, they're they're more successful than others. Uh, but but those states that are that are really keen on the, promoting this positive image, doing something like a big sporting event as a way to put a positive spin on a regime that is otherwise quite brutal, uh, or suppresses all sorts of other uh, expressions of freedom, whatever that may look like in a particular context. So they they yeah. try and sell it to the population in that way, right? But like all these other sort of networks that we see, where whether it happens in an authoritarian state or a democratic state, uh, a lot of this is about just those those elites with their hands in the cookie jar and pretty sure. interested in trying to get that money or political connections, whatever it is that comes with, with hosting an event. So for a, a, a a mayor of a city or a leader of an entire country like uh, like Putin and Russia, they they definitely are interested in, and those people around them are interested in uh, the the money and the financial rewards that come out of this. So. When we look at all these stadiums that are being built and the, the millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars getting dumped into them. And a lot of people always look at that and they say, like, what's the use? The people are never going to get all of their money back and they're never going to benefit from it uh, at the end of the day. And of course they're not. The people that built it, they made 
a ton of money and they, they got what they, they bargained for, you know, so, but they don't have any vested interest in it after they've built it because they got their paycheck. One of the Russian stadiums is, is the most expensive stadium ever built. I don't know. I think it's not St. Petersburg, but it's one of those places. Because I've, I've read that they spent $11 billion on stadiums for this World Cup, which yeah. feels like quite a few billions to me. Uh, and then they've also just done a Winter Olympics that was very expensive. And and Natalie, you've done some great work on authoritarian autocrat leaders using sports as part of their persona. And and like Putin's definitely one of the leading people of that, right? Like I, yeah. so many of us know him as a meme without a shirt on, like fishing right. and riding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because we we know him that way today, but he was definitely not the first to do that. Mussolini, for example, loved to have pictures of himself doing sports and also shirtless. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so there's some there's a whole series of photos of Mussolini doing shirtless sports, uh, specifically skiing. <laughs> no way. So yeah, no, a, a lot of authoritarian leaders that that I've that. I uh, have done some research on have have used sports in this way for their own political uh, sort of image building. But one thing that I also have noticed in my research on this topic is that it's not necessarily just about the leader. Like it's not just about Putin. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not just about him and his ego. And the same thing in Kazakhstan, uh, the president there, Nazarbayev, he desperately wants the Olympics to come to Kazakhstan. And if anybody mm-hmm. was paying attention for the the, the most recent uh, bidding process for uh, the Winter Olympics, Kazakhstan and China were the, the last two standing. Uh, it eventually, oh, wow. you know, went. To, went to to China, but uh, Kazakhstan's president is just like he loves to be photographed doing sports as well. You can find him doing just about anything and everything. Uh, but the thing is that the people around him, all of those cronies, all of his elite sort of circle, they know the way to promotion, the way to get on the good side of the leader is to do anything that they can to get these big sporting events to come to them. Uh, So it's not like Putin or it's not like Nazarbayev or any of these guys are pointing a finger and saying, I want the Olympics, like make it happen. A lot of the elites around them are coming together and saying, how do I, how do I secure my position here? How do I make sure that the president thinks fondly of me and, and make sure that I stay in the in circle because God forbid you get out trying to, and, and affecting that that um, possibility of having one of those big events mm-hmm. is is a is a good way to secure your position uh, in in those power circles. Uh, so that that often sort of comes from the bottom up in, in a way, even though you know it is all about the sort of personality cults and building and building up the image of the leader as the one who made this possible. Because that's extra fascinating. Because in the investigation of Russia and whether or not there was bribery to get the cup, they haven't found any super specific thing where like Putin bribed somebody or something, but it sounds like that wouldn't need to happen. It sounds like people under him would want to be on the up and up and take care of it for him without any direct orders. 
Precisely. And you can apply that to basically anything with Russian politics, right? The, the elites around, they know what their job is. He doesn't need to say anything. And for him to say something, you know, that puts him in jeopardy. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of that just comes from uh, the, those people in the circles around uh, around an authoritarian leader that they, they know how to how to please him. At the same time, like the, so the idea of, of a personality cult of a of a leader at the center, it's it's a fiction right because the the leader can't decide everything like we want to talk about putin as if he does all of these crazy things and like yeah he's pretty nuts but right. he can't do all of these things that people say he does uh, but the elites around him they also benefit from that image that it's just putin because it keeps the attention away from them um and it sort of builds up this whole idea of of the superhuman leader who can do anything and everything and again we come back to Mussolini. <laughs> With he shirt. was really good at that too. <laughs> right. Real shirtless skiing. Support for today's show comes from our friends at Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you ought to be comfortable. And hey, I'm a comfortable fella. I don't know if you can tell from my voice or my demeanor or... You know, if you've seen me around town lately, something like that. My Casper is a fantastic mattress. It's the best sleep I have ever gotten. It was very easy to set up, too. It just pops right out of the box. I've described it as being like science fiction technology before, and that's appropriate. It's fantastic. And I'm really appreciating being rested in a way that I, I didn't really think about before. And I think you can get that experience, too, by getting this kind of mattress. I think you ought to. It'd be nice. You know what else is nice? $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash cracked and using cracked at checkout. That's the promo code. That's casper.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. Because also this thing with soccer and the Olympics and cycling and it goes into so many other sports that happen sort of internationally because Natalie had picked out in your work uh, Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan al-Nayan I don't know if I pronounced any Mm -hmm. of that correctly that's pretty Um, good but oh thank you Uh, he was the leader of the United Arab Emirates and also you've written about how he like used falconry as a way yeah. to be a, a powerful leader and, and kind of set himself up in his country. Yeah. So a, a lot of these leaders, as I was talking about, that are that are really keen to have themselves promoted as sportsmen, as athletes, uh, each, each of them tends to have their own particular kind of sport that they might be interested in. So we see Putin doing all sorts of sort of mainstream sports. Mao, Chairman Mao of China, was famous for his swimming. And Sheikh Zayed loved falconry and really sort of held himself up as as this great falconer and um it 
it's a big part of a Gulf identity is is about falconry and, and promoting that sort of attachment to the homeland and love through this sort of sport that is attached to uh, the Arabian Peninsula in particular. So, yeah. you know, oft, often it is about building that narrative about what a real sort of proper national identity looks like. And sports is a good way of doing that. Sheikh Syed, he wasn't he like he was like funding the, the buildup of falconry as like a sport in the country that people were into. Right. It was this was there were like there was like government resources going into his legend of of loving uh, birds. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so you see all across the UAE, you see a, a ton of different initiatives. But I mean, one of the most famous things is the Falcon Hospital in Abu Dhabi, which is fantastic. If anybody ever goes <laughs> to Abu Dhabi. I think your number one stop should be uh, the Falcon Hospital because you can get, you can get, to, you can get a tour and you can get to see how they take care of these falcons and it, it's you know these are birds that cost about eighty to hundred thousand dollars some of them, uh, and so they go and they get their nails manicured or they get operated on if there's some bigger issue. Uh, it's it's pretty remarkable, but they also you know develop all sorts of conservation programs that they use to get a foothold in uh, other countries, and so that's part of my research is looking at how um, the Gulf countries, uh, their elites are going and they're doing falcon hunting in other parts of the world. And uh, Kazakhstan is one of the big destinations of that, as is Turkmenistan and, and some others. So uh, a lot of the money that goes into these conservation programs then gets treated as aid, uh, sort of development programs. Or in the case of Kazakhstan, people are allowed to hunt in the wild if they have demonstrated that they have uh, contributed to some sort of local conservation efforts. So uh, Qatar and the UAE have programs in Kazakhstan to sort of save the, the local uh, wildlife populations. And this then opens the door for these uh, elites from the Gulf to go and hunt, uh, to, to do falconry there in the wild. So one of the things that that's going to be interesting with, uh, with the World Cup in Qatar is the fact that the country is under blockade from most of its regional neighbors right now uh, and has been since June of 2017. But a big piece of the story behind that is that there was a, uh, a hunting, a, a falconry hunting party that was kidnapped in Iraq uh, and there were like 24 hostages held. The Qatari government paid this huge uh, ransom payment. Estimates are around a billion dollars to all sorts of shady groups, uh, including sort of terror organizations that were holding these falconers hostage uh, and that that was you know one of the one of the ways that uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE who were kind of already agitated with with Qatar and its involvement in international spheres um, to to point to that and say look this is this is Qatar funding terrorism uh, so the the falconry stuff it it plays uh. out in, in kind of odd odd ways but it also means that back when those hostages were taken in December 2015, that those Gulf elites realized that it's not really safe to hunt in Iraq, and perhaps they should go somewhere uh, else like Kazakhstan. <laughs> where... And the sport isn't just sports, it's also international diplomacy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Largely when you hear people speaking counter to Putin, it's a journalist or it's or it's it's a rebel from outside or it's somebody doing something and you know what happens to them. It seems... That mm -hmm. you know anyone who turns coat or uh, says something that is that is sort of in the direct opposite direction of, of 
of what the state is saying or what he seems to be saying. It's Just public, a, a, it's public yeah. and it's clean and, you know, and things happen. There at least seem to be some thread, some people willing to go out and do something. And I, as far as I can tell, I haven't seen anything in, in the way of a protest of this World Cup. And I wonder if, on the one hand, somebody is waiting for a larger stage, meaning the World Cup is in effect, and then something goes on. Or on the ground level, there are people who just more people who just want this to happen, and they're ready for the for the spectacle to happen. And you know, I know that the people, from what I've heard, are so strongly behind this team, especially the 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 lead player on that team is just super. He's, he's pretty young; he's like nineteen. On the Russian team, yeah. And yeah. So this team has sort of been pushed into pushed to the people as as this is your team; these are your players. Um, and most of them play in the Russian league, and and I wonder if that's part of the part of the, of, of why we haven't seen anything, and there really isn't any uh, major sort of counter counter argument or protest that's going to come out of this. I think Russians are are extremely pragmatic. Uh, they they know when it's worth their time and energy to to stick up for what they believe in. And I think a lot of Russians are also extremely disenchanted. So my my sense is that uh, there, there's a mix of that sort of apathy there with actual national pride, right? And that's why these these events are pretty popular among a number of these uh, these authoritarian leaders that have the have the funds to do it, because they recognize that yeah they can pull on the heartstrings and get people on their side even when they might be like pretty vocal opponents of government policy in other realms but but that said i also think that there's kind of a disenchantment after sochi so after after all the sort of protests and everything that, that you saw mobilized around that particular event even even amongst the international community human rights watch has issued some some reports and done some reporting uh, themselves on a number of these uh, this stadium human rights violations, et cetera. And, and a lot of the, the activism that they've been doing more recently has actually focused more on Russia's involvement in Syria. And that's interesting to me, you know, the fact that Human Rights Watch is focusing more on Syria than on what's happening in domestic politics. It kind of says that, you know, they're, they recognize that what I think a lot of the a lot of the media wants to just believe that transparency and revealing all of these violations is going to somehow just on its own result in some sort of change that that doesn't really happen. And I think Sochi really illustrated that, right? Let's demonstrate all of these these problems in Russia. Okay, we did that. And now what? <laughs> yeah. We still right. have the same thing four years later, right? Yeah. I, I think it's a, some disenchantment comes along with that. Right. But. Yeah, that makes sense. Because well, especially in Russia's case, like between getting the World Cup and upcoming getting to do it, they invaded Crimea. They've been involved in yeah. Syria. It's, it's, yeah. But also the Ukraine they, very, very quiet. Yeah, they, they've assassinated yeah. people. They've been basically kicked out of an entire Olympics for doping. Uh, and that, yep. But it doesn't like stop them from getting to do the World Cup. They just get to still do this thing of, hey, be patriotic, my fellow Russians, because we have this young team with this great 19-year-old. Like, let's just get stoked about that, right? Right. Like, it's and, like that Simpsons yeah. joke, like, let's just see him sock dingers. Like, let's just do it. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's going to be interesting, too, because England, I mean, you know, England's got to go there. And I think what they're hoping is that there's nothing that pushes that issue forward. Oh, that, that stuff happened on their territory. Because of the assassination in the UK. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah. which was the second which is the second one that we know of public, you know, in the last, say, eight years or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you've got that and some other sort of satellite issues that if somebody wanted to make a move, this is the stage to do it, whether it's peaceful or, or otherwise. But. One of the biggest things that, that, that is a risk for Russia's sort of pride is that I, I suspect a lot of the stadiums are not going to be very full. And oh. that's that's going to be an embarrassment uh, if if they're not overly full. And you, I mean, you you're asking spectators to travel huge distances, uh, mostly by air. And Russia is not an easy country to get around. Uh, it's it's just going to be logistically challenging for for spectators. So I think that you know just. Russians themselves, based on their history of being part of the Soviet Union, and in many cases being forced to attend certain events, notably still happens in Turkmenistan, by the way. Uh, the government <laughs> oh, tells you like you have to go watch this horse race. <laughs> and people are all carted off to the stadium. They have to sit there, right? Uh, so that was a pretty common thing in the Soviet times. And so a lot of a lot of citizens who didn't who used to to, to have that sort of experience, they have no interest in being told uh, go to these games. And in Kazakhstan, also, like they give away free tickets. They try and convince the people to go, and nobody goes. Maybe, so maybe that's way of resisting. Yeah. Just no, go hire some cutteries, actors and train them. The cutteries have done this. I am no not way. kidding you. <laughs> so <laughs> they literally hire some of these <laughs> these expat workers, give them a dish dasha and the male headdress, and they tell them to go sit in the stadium so that they are full. They have already been working on this. <laughs> so yeah. if Cutter's attendance uh, is low, they they know who the actors are and they've got the, the wardrobe on hand to uh, make sure that those stadiums look full. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. Dish Josh, so are they taking these people and making them dress up as what would be like a stereotypical Cuttery yeah, person? Yeah, like a Gulf, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gulf national dress. I know that like the one of the the largest stadium is not is over ninety thousand in capacity in Russia. I think yeah. yeah, and then a capacity of if I'm right of most of them on average is somewhere around forty five. The World Cup and totalitarians both love building stadiums that don't make sense. Like I would completely believe that it's going to be hard to get to games in Russia because that just like happens with these cups in Brazil. They built a stadium in Manaus that seats forty five thousand people, and Manaus is in pretty much the middle of the Amazon rainforest. It's a city. <laughs> yeah. I don't mean to like yeah. uh, make fun of it or something, but it, it doesn't really support no, but, a But then giant a municipality thing. has to take it over, right? So yeah, yeah, that's, they, the, the, that's the big that's the big thing that then hits the people pretty hard. Absolutely. Um, but th- this is what I was saying before about how these these people that are behind the the bids and behind this the the political and financial elites specifically in authoritarian states and specifically ones that have uh, large oil and gas reserves or other sort of natural resources money that the that the government has pretty easy control over they uh, they're able to sort of delegate these big construction contracts to their friends and that's precisely what happens uh, so those people have made their money they've 
cashed out. They have, you know, they don't have any stake in what happens to it afterwards. What do they care? Uh, so, you know, I think this is why I, I think we're going to continue to see more and more of these events going to authoritarian states unless, yeah, the, the international governing bodies sort of change course and, and are more conscientious about this, which it looks like they might be. But if that if this sort of pattern continues, you're not going to have the sort of opposition that you saw to Boston's bid for the Olympics, for example, right. uh, like in democratic states where people say, no, we're not going to foot that bill. Forget that. Whereas, you know, in, in authoritarian states, the people don't have any way of protesting that. And it's it's the people that are that are at the top then that get to decide. Okay, yeah, we'll choose Kaliningrad for uh, a venue for the World Cup, right? Like, did you I don't want to see that though. I wonder did if there yeah. if you saw any similarities in the actual U.S. World Cup, which I did attend in in Massachusetts. I went to a couple of matches. When you say um, U.S. World Cup, like yeah. in ninety four, ninety four was it yeah. the ninety four World Cup? And I just wonder if you found any similarities in this sort of bidding war that went on that allowed the U.S. To, to get that. I mean, they certainly, I think they called in Uberoth as like a, as a consultant on it and they weren't going to let that fail as, as a presentation device, but I wonder how they got it. And if you, if you, saw anything or have any info on yeah i actually haven't really looked at the u.s world cup uh but i can certainly say there's huge similarities with uh with what you saw happening with the montreal's hosting of of the olympics uh so the the big stadium that they built there i mean it was it was supposed to be a couple hundred million dollars i'm gonna just say canadian (laughs) (laughs) It got up to almost a billion dollars. Uh, the the city only finished paying off its loans for the uh, for hosting the Olympics in the 1970s. About I want to say in 2013 or 2014. You know they they completely uh, blew through the budget and had all sorts of corruption around that particular stadium deal. Uh, and, and again, it's a sort of financial political elites who are help friends helping friends, right? Uh, so I, I don't think there's there's too much that uh, that we can say is is unique about uh, these authoritarian states. But what I do think is unique is that you're you you just are starting to get enough popular awareness in the United States now and in other places around the world uh, about this being such a big problem and people pushing back uh, like the like the opposition to Boston uh, hosting you know there was just huge uproar in Boston right. saying yeah. no we're not going to do this uh, and and in authoritarian states when they've closed that opportunity down then yeah, you're gonna they, that popular sentiment can get steamrolled, or it just doesn't exist. And it also because it does seem worth saying that we're talking about a lot of totalitarian places, authoritarian places managing to get the Olympics and the World Cup and getting to spend all this money on it. The mm-hmm. U.S. is also in line for both of those things as a pair coming up pretty I think soon. We'll hear about that in we'll, a couple days, right? I think. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, they so it'll be after this comes out, people will find out the day before the World Cup starts this year. Who gets the 2026 World Cup and the uh, bids are either Morocco or a joint U.S.-Mexico-Canada bid that's mostly the U.S. But if that happens, it'll be within a two-year period, a Los Angeles Summer Olympics and a U.S. World Cup. Should we be, like, scared about that? (laughs) A lot of the pitch for L.A. is that it already has the facilities for A lot of the pitch for the U.S. is that they already have. I mean, you look at by the time that World Cup rolls around, they've just announced they're taking MLS from... 
where it is now to 28 teams ultimately, and they just announced Cincinnati has one. They're building a stadium. It'll be ready in three years. Um, so yeah. if you count the stadiums that are that are um, for soccer specific soccer specific yeah. venues that MLS has built, because in the bidding war and bidding process, that's the big deal. You can use an existing one to start, but they want to know that you have a soccer specific stadium in your right. area um, that you're constructing or in the process of constructing or well through, uh, well on. Every time that someone is is uh, is named. If there is an issue, again, FIFA themselves go out and they do this. And maybe we lobby, hit that button, and say, "By the way, we're ready." In an emergency, yeah. we're ready. The one, the the U, the women's World Cup that the U.S. won against China, the one that sort of sparked the notoriety for the women's game and the women's team, it was an emergency bid. I forgot who wasn't able to go. Oh, but, really? Yeah, I think we got it at, just because somebody wasn't ready, and we said, "Look, pick one." Pick we, a city. Yeah, we're we have good. these NFL stadiums. We can just kind of yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I think that has to be part of any bid that we go in with is that you know there's a structure here already, but and a travel structure as well. It's not easy to travel in in much of Russia. I mean, it, it's it's much it's it's pretty pretty streamlined for international travelers in in major places like Petersburg and Moscow. But once you get to the to the fringes, it, it definitely gets a little bit harder. Uh, so I, I can imagine lots of, of bureaucratic headaches around that. But I can also imagine a lot of people just not bothering, uh, not feeling like it's really worth the hassle to get a visa to go. Uh, and that's that it's expensive. It's a lot of work. Uh, so in some cases. Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan that had these sort of European games that they started in 2015, they tried to ease, temporarily ease visa restrictions to just basically help get get more visitors to come for these big events. Uh, but I'm not I'm not sure how well Russia is going to handle lots of international visitors for that for this particular event, especially in the again the further reaches where. They're not necessarily accustomed to getting a ton of international travelers. Uh, I think that might be a little bit jarring. I would sort of love it if, like, there's one channel showing the World Cup games and then another channel showing just, like, the chaos (laughs) immediately outside the stadium. Like, it's so fascinating that, like, maybe there will be a few empty seats on TV, but we're not going to see any of that going on. And and it may even be packaged as just, like, well, you might have heard there's some stuff, but don't worry about it. And like, because right. that's all, that's FIFA's approach too to like labor in Qatar. Like, there's a, a yeah. not great system where that is uh, involves confiscating the passports of migrant workers and forcing them to work in crazy heat. These organizations are just doing this thing, and it's not known about uh, because like I think we want sports to be such a positive because we like it so much, right? Like that's yeah. what we're going for. The important thing to to keep in mind is precisely what you just mentioned is is the selective vision of the television, right? These these people that are behind the the production, the media spectacle of getting that on your television, they are experts. So you might have a yeah. bunch of goons <laughs> running <laughs> the show on the ground. Uh, but the people that are behind the scenes doing all this media stuff, they are remarkably good at making stuff look good. Um, and, and this was something I, I really observed in full force when I was in Qatar watching the uh, the World Cycling Championships because it was 
completely empty. Like all of these race venues were just abandoned. And you could see a little bit of that. There was there was a, a, a limit to some extent of how much of the editing they could cut out the lack of spectators. <laughs> right. uh, but nonetheless, you know, they're they're pretty pretty good at focusing your attention on what they want, which is uh, the 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 positive, as you mentioned, because that's what a lot of people want to watch and, and yeah. see these sorts of things. And this is why, I mean, Human Rights Watch issued, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, um, a, a PDF document that they call a uh, reporter's guide or a journalist's guide for covering the World Cup. And so the idea here is to say, okay, we recognize that this is going to get a lot of attention from the, from the journalists. So why don't we give you some guidelines about issues to touch on uh, in terms of, of getting people's attention uh, to, to get them to at least think about some of these other issues that are happening. That said, I do think that there's a lot, there, there are limits to that, right? Again, what I pointed out before is that we can't necessarily equate transparency and exposure of all these issues with substantive change. It feels really good to say shame on you. That makes you feel like a better person for recognizing that there, there's stuff going on, but it doesn't mean that you're going to go out and change the world and you're going to end the abusive kafala system in the Gulf where you do have these migrant workers yeah. uh, that, that have, uh, in some cases, have their, their passports taken away. It's important to raise the attention, but it doesn't mean change unless we actually t kind of build that conversation out beyond that. You're talking about the, the ability of the broadcasters to kind of expertly maneuver around um, half-filled <laughs> stadiums and stadiums. And, yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, right. and I think a lot of that is also helped by the fact that broadcast of sports has moved in this more cinematic, in this more cinematic mm. region. So suddenly close-ups of the bench, people's reactions on the bench, you can fill time with uh, mm. with replays and 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 slow motion replays and other angles of shots and suddenly a shot that uh, maybe in seventy four you would have seen once or twice over the course of a match before they had to return to the larger picture they'll make you relive it as long as you want to by showing you any number of angles any number of new speed uh, speed changes yeah. within camera and that kind of stuff a and call it, and call it analysis uh, and that kind of stuff and I also think but also the same people. It seems to me, and I could and I could be wrong about this because obviously I'm not in the middle of it, but it seems that they have a position to create narrative while the event is going, or it's to their benefit to create narrative while the event is hot. Even if they're not the network doing the main coverage, the highlights are hot, so we'll show you highlights here, highlights there, blah, 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 blah. Maybe a side story yeah. here and there about something that's very different or human interest or a political issue, but mostly for the next however many months afterward, even a year afterward, two years afterward, leading into the next one. Any research that is done, any journalistic findings that, that are found uh, connecting uh, human rights issues, uh, issues with workers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and where all these things sort of cross over, can, that kind of reportage can also draw as well, if not even better, when it, when it exists as fallout. So months after the games, you say, well, we saw this and we heard this and this was great, but what about this, which is going on at the same time? Here's something you didn't know. 
and on and on. That's a really good point. I mean, I, I, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons I like teaching about sport as well. Uh, so I teach about sport in my urban geography classes and political geography classes and authoritarian class that I teach. Um, this is this is something that even if the students aren't necessarily sort of keyed into what's happening in Russia, they've at least watched the World Cup this summer. And then when we come back to class in the fall, they'll have lots and lots of questions about Russia. Uh, so I think you're exactly right that, that that does kind of inject it into the popular consciousness and then you can kind of pull back and say, all right, let's 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 digest what happened. Yeah, like it's almost an aware, accidental awareness tool of these yeah. things that are going on. Because sports is so like, it, it just, I feel like politics just bleeds into it no matter what, right? Like occasionally yeah. it's really, really pointed like like looking back at Mussolini he made a point of building up Italian soccer in the 1938 World Cup they had the Italian soccer team wearing black shirts at one point like Mussolini street guys and doing the salute and they were doing it in France that they were about to go to war with uh you know like, like there's that really really pointed thing but then there's all kinds of other bleed over with all these other side things too it's it's fascinating and, and on the flip side, I think it's interesting that you, you look at the history of, of Germany after World War II, when they were thinking about sports as a way to promote national pride and, and nation building, uh, that sports was a really important way of bringing the country together after World War II, because you don't have like the institution of the state to be proud of, right? We just got rid of the Nazi regime. Uh, so sports was kind of unifying in that in that sense. So it, yeah. can, it, it can be played both ways. And I, I think that's what's so fascinating about it is that, um, that it has so much positive potential as much as it does have the negative. Okay. See, that's yeah. the thing. That's, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I know that we've had this focus this time, but that's the stuff, man. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Demorge Brown and Dr. Natalie Cook for sharing their lived experiences with soccer and cycling and falconry and dictatorships. Extra thank you to Dr. Cook for calling in in between trips to Doha and to Helsinki. And thank you to Demorge for limping into that taping with a fresh injury from, that's right, playing soccer. Our guests are legit. And hey, you, you are legit too. Did you know that? You should know that. And you deserve the very best food notes. You get them this week. There's tons on those investigations and bribes and scandals and Chuck Blazer. I'm, I'm still not over that guy's name, you know? Isn't that neat? Chuck Blazer? It sounds like a name for the guy driving the Knight Rider car. I don't know why. Also, we'll get into tons of past and present dictators doing sports stuff. You can see it there. And along with all that, dive into Dr. Cook's website to know all kinds of things about what she's studying and publications that are coming out soon that I think are really neat and all about this kind of thing. Also, a couple soccer things to kind of clarify, kind of confirm. At one point, Demorge mentioned that a Women's World Cup moved countries at the last minute, whole different host country, and that happened. 2003 Women's Cup went from China to the U.S. in an emergency situation, partly due to a SARS outbreak in China. And at one point, I mentioned offhand that Brazil is not over defeats from the 1950s. I'm talking about one single defeat in the year 1950. We're linking a piece about how that has scarred the Brazilian psyche for almost half a century. You know what? More than half a century, because that's how math works. Also, some of you might be wondering, like, hey, why isn't the U.S. in the World Cup? That's the most relevant to me. 
Well, we're linking an exhaustive piece from The Ringer about how that team lost enough qualifying matches to not be in the cup this time around, but who knows, maybe we'll host it in 2026 and get that automatic bid, baby! And what else do I have to tell you beyond that? An enormous thank you to everyone who came to our live podcast this past weekend. You had great stories and a lot of just fun hanging out with us. We'll get that episode in the feed in the next few weeks, and I'm very excited about that. Also, thank you to everybody who came to my TV pilot script table read. That was just very, very, very nice. And y'all were also very thoughtful about how a piece of writing works, which takes a lot of mental energy. And that's very, very, very cool of you. So thank you. But enough about this weekend. Let's talk about this episode. Our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Ryan Connor and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A place where you can be sure to let me know how dumb I was for saying Belgium might win it all this time around. Cause like, come on Al, Brazil exists, you dummy. They're huge, they're great. You know what else exists? My Twitter account, at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. Also, you know, what if I was right about Belgium? Let me know that too. That would be pretty cool, right? You know, look at them, cheering in Brussels and, and Bruges. Anyway, I'm happy to say we will be back next week with even more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.